Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. Hi, I'm Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I'm your host. And uh, today on the podcast, we're going to take a step back and consider where we are in the inflation cycle, in the short term, the medium term, and the long term. Uh, We got the second quarter GDP uh, figures this morning, and that means we have our first estimate of, among other things, monetary velocities increase in the second quarter. And yesterday, we had the Fed and Chairman Powell hiking one more time. I've been telling the tale here for years uh, about inflation. What chapter are we in and what twists and turns still lie ahead? That's what we'll talk about today. But first, a word from our sponsor. This this episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs, a fast-growing ETF shop democratizing access to the most sophisticated alternative strategies. With diversifying strategies like market-neutral equity long-short, managed futures, and multi-strat quant, Simplify has a suite of compelling tools to help address the biggest concerns with the classic 60-40 portfolio. Check out their website, simplify.us. That's simplify.us. And you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. And then, as always, we have the one other preliminary, and that's the trivia question. I hope you guys like the trivia question. Uh, it's uh, at least, hopefully, it makes you uh, want to listen to the end, or at least fast forward. Anyway, um, here's the the trivia question. It's a 1908 song by Jack Norworth. It's really a, a ditty more than a song, and it's sung millions and millions of times every year in the United States. And it leads into its famous refrain with the stanza. On a Saturday, her young beau called to see if she'd like to go to see a show, but Miss Kate said no. I'll tell you what you can do. And then it goes to the refrain. And the hint here is that no one ever, ever sings that verse. They only sing the refrain. The refrain is what's famous about this particular ditty, and I'll tell you at the end. Now, I spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the latest CPI numbers, really short-term stuff and other zigs and zags, but inflation isn't a short-term phenomenon, right? I mean, I actually hate looking at the monthly figures. It's just, you know, it's it's navel-gazing and it it's it's not what we as investors really should care a whole lot about. This month's numbers just not that important to someone who has a 50-year investment career. Inflation is something that bleeds you persistently over a long period of time. If, if you think about economic cycles as being a book series, like the Harry Potter series, then each number is kind of like a page. <laughs> and each book of that series is fairly similar in a lot of ways. So there's an introduction, rising action, climax, falling action, and resolution, or the, the five classic parts of a, of a, of a story. But each of those books is also very different. Each of the books of the Harry Potter series has all of those parts, but each of the books are, are very different. And, and moreover, the books exist on a meta arc where the story is advancing over time from one book to the next. And economic cycles are very similar to this. Uh, the first question is, you know, you've just read the page, but the question that but it's more important than the page is what chapter are you in? And the bigger question is, where are we in the series? 
So from time to time, it's important to take a step back and see where this plot is taking us, both where we are in the rising action, falling action part of things, but where we are in the whole uh, the whole multi-book series. So in the current cycle in inflation, we've seen the introduction, we've seen the rising action, uh, and we're we're clearly on the falling action side of things now. The um, it looks like rents, both primary rents and owners' equivalent rents, are finally decelerating. Uh, some prognosticators expect rent growth to go negative in the CPI. Um, I don't. Uh, my models had the eventual leveling out at two to three percent in nominal terms, which will still be essentially a small decline in real terms. Um, but it's it, you know it's it's so important to think in real terms because when we have inflation bumping along at one or two percent, then nominal terms and real terms are about the same. But if inflation is at three or four or five percent, then we have to recognize that a four percent rise in prices of a particular good, when inflation is at four percent, is actually no change in sort of the real resources it requires. So rents if they level out at 2 or 3%, are going to be slightly deflating compared to everything else. Um, so that's my model, is that we'll be at 2 or 3%, not zero. And people are telling you that we'll get zero nominal increase in rents. Um, and, and part of the reason they tell you that is that they're, they train their models in nominal terms over the last 25 years. And so, you know, they're going to get answers that are small declines in real terms, but from what they think is inflation at one and a half. So uh, anyway, regardless of where the number comes in, it's going to be lower than, than current rent inflation. On the other hand, and this is sort of short, medium term, we've got energy heading back up, and that's going to hurt the headline figure. The headline figure has been flattered for quite some time now from gasoline prices that were coming down thanks to SPR oil sales and, and, and things like that. Um, energy heading back up. It's going to hurt the headline figure. It looks like food prices might be headed higher as well. Um, you know, food prices don't tend to have long two-year cycles or anything um, like energy tends to, but but uh, uh, but they do appear to be headed back higher. Uh, a big concern recently has been health insurance. That's been a persistent drag. And if you listen to my monthly numbers, you sort of my monthly report on the CPI, you, you sort of understand the the background issue here, but it's been a persistent drag for nine months or so. It's going to keep being a drag for three months, and then it'll start to be an ad going the other direction starting in October. And wage growth is still up at 5.6% year on year, so core services inflation isn't about to collapse. So we're on the falling action side of things, but the decline isn't purely linear, linear and, it's, and we're not going to have inflation go to zero. Uh, so where is it going by the end of the book that we're in? And then we'll step back and talk about the whole arc. So this morning, as I said, we got the second quarter GDP uh, advance numbers. So the GDP is actually reported and then in an advance and then preliminary and then final. So there's three different reports uh, on the same quarter. So the one that we get today is based on a limited set of data. They get a little more data, and they next month they'll revise it, and then they'll revise it again when it becomes the final. So, um, And the final isn't really the final, but that's a different story. Um, but this is the first look at second quarter GDP. And um, and that, among other things, so it was up 
uh, 2.4% or something, a little stronger than than people had expected. Um, from my standpoint, the important thing is that having these numbers allows us to calculate what happens to money velocity. Uh, because now we have second quarter money numbers, and we have the second quarter prices, and now we have the second quarter growth. And so that's three of the four pieces of the MV equals PQ equation, so we can go calculate what V is, and V is just a plug number. And so the big picture arc we are in is that since the end of March 2020, prices have gone up about 15.4% on a core inflation basis. Money supply divided by GDP is up 21.7%, and, and the consequence um, of that MV equals PQ is that those numbers will tend to move back together absent a trend in money velocity. Um, and, and so money supply divided by GDP is M over Q. So I took that MV equals PQ and I just did a little algebra and, and said, if V is unchanged, then M over Q equals P. So, so we can see that since the beginning of the crisis, P is up 15.4, M over Q is up 21.7. That tells us that velocity has changed. Uh, back in episode 50, I sort of introduced an analogy to explain how velocity is behaving and was going to behave. Um, in this cycle, it's behaving a little differently. It's acting like a spring connecting a car to a trailer. As the car accelerates, as the, the spring stretches as the trailer accelerates more slowly. The trailer's coming along for the ride, but it's accelerating a little more slowly than the car is, so the spring stretches. But eventually, as the car gets up to its, its regular velocity, the spring contracts, the trailer caps up, um, and eventually we know those two things are going to be traveling together. The accelerating car in the analogy, and again, you can go back to episode 50, and I've got a link in the notes. Um, the accelerating car was the money that was just suddenly dumped into the economy in, in 2020, uh, in the early stages of the uh, uh, COVID shutdown. Um, prices did not immediately adjust. Prices never immediately adjust to the massive spike in, in M2. Uh, and growth didn't immediately adjust. And so, and so that causes velocity to plunge just mathematically because it's a plug figure. Um, but prices, money, and velocity have been adjusting ever since to sort of, you know, get everything... Uh, you know, to sort of a, a stasis to an equilibrium. Um, so, it's, so velocity is 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 kind of a capacitor. With this morning's figures, get, getting back to when I started before that little digression. This morning's figure, we see that velocity in the second quarter jumped at a nine and a half percent annualized rate, which is a lot. That's a pretty fast rate uh, of a jump for velocity. And I've been telling you this is this is happening. The last three quarters, in fact. We have seen the three fastest quarterly increases since 1981, with one exception, and that was the quarter in 2020 where there was a, a, a rebound after the initial crash in velocity. Um, so that 8.4% rise in velocity over the last three quarters is the fastest three-quarter rise of velocity ever. Uh, Again, this is a little bit of a different cycle because normally we don't dump, you know, 20% of the money supply doesn't get dumped in overnight. 
And, and so velocity normally moves in a little bit more stately a fashion. Um, but this is kind of what tells you that what's happening is the whole trailer analogy uh, uh, with the spring is that clearly velocity here is, is, is being sort of a, a temporal adjustment. Um, so the M over Q numbers and the P numbers you know, that's the 21.7 and the 15.4 I mentioned earlier, they're moving closer together, but there's still potential energy. The money supply adjusted for growth is still, has still gone up lots more than prices have gone up. And so unless velocity is permanently impaired, uh, those two series are going to converge. Either M over Q drops or prices go up or, or both. Um, now, yeah, there were some people who told you that velocity was going to stay down forever, that, you know, it was broken. But those people don't know what velocity is, and they don't know how it works. All velocity is, in this case, is just a temporal shift. M moves fast. PK, PQ moves slow. So V needs to be a capacitor, at least in this case. It needs to... to, to you know, hold the the, potent, the energy from money until PQ gets to fully, fully adjust. Uh, a case can be made, and and I've made this before, and I, I, can, I will make it again. That that velocity should more than correct the decline because the major driver of velocity over time is interest rates, and interest rates are higher. But right now we're just talking about getting back to the pre-COVID uh, level, and so there's still potential energy there. Even if, it, if velocity just gets back to the pre-COVID level, we still have to have a 6% uh, rise in prices uh, from here or a 6% decline in money divide, divided by growth uh, or some combination of those two things. And so that's the potential energy. We know we've got to at least get that. Um, now, I've been saying that the Fed is wasting his time with interest rate hikes, but the reduction in the balance sheet is something that I've been calling for since my last book in 2016, link in the notes. And the Fed is doing the right thing on that because that's what they really need to do is they need to, they need to restrain this liquidity. They need to pull back a lot of this liquidity that they dumped in. Um, and although they don't directly control the money supply, reducing the balance sheet is a sine qua non uh, without which the money supply is not going to, to decelerate or go down. <clears throat> now, the me from last year would have been surprised that the money supply followed the balance sheet lower. And the reason is that, so the balance sheet, the, the bank reserves, um, the, 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 the balance sheet in total um, is... Uh, uh, means that there's way more reserves in the system than banks actually need. In the past, the Fed would manage that in order to, to directly affect the pace of lending. But for some time now, the Fed has ignored that, and banks can basically lend whatever they want, constrained only by their capital and not constrained by uh, reserves. And so reducing the 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 balance sheet, reducing those reserves, at some level shouldn't affect the money supply because it doesn't constrain banks in any way. And so the me from last year would have been really, really surprised by the fact that the money supply has actually fallen. Um, 
I assumed loan demand would be less elastic than, in fact, it has. I, I didn't really anticipate the effect that collapsing mortgage origination activity would have. There was, and, and there was definitely some sticker shock with the higher interest rates on loans, and loan demand dropped sharply. Plus, there's still a lot of money around. So banks were perfectly willing to lend. Uh, just, you know, you, look, you increase interest rates, and especially when short-term interest rates are higher long, and banks are delighted to lend. Um, so there wasn't any problem with loan supply. It was loan demand. And again, I didn't expect that would really correct. But there was a sticker shock, and, and so loan demand really, um, uh, really pulled back. And there was also less reason to borrow because there was so much money sloshing around that, you know, many people who ordinarily would be living off their credit cards didn't have to because suddenly the government had essentially paid them off. So, but again, in the, the, the decline in mortgage activity had something to do with this. The Mortgage Banking Association refinancing index fell 90% from the end of 2020 until, until now. Uh, so that's a massive decline in loan origination or refinancing and, and origination. Uh, and so M2 has steadily been declining, not super rapidly, but it's been steadily declining until two months ago. And then in the last two months, it's actually risen, even though the balance sheet reduction continues. So so that's part of the whole question in the story here is, is look, if, if you know, we want either prices have to go up or money's got to come down or some combination of the two. And and so while the Fed is is constraining its balance sheet, not constraining, but reducing it anyway, then is that really going to have the continued effect on, on the money supply? I mean, they have to do it to even have a chance of this, right? But the last couple of months, we've seen the money supply go up anyway, and which means that loan demand has has come back a little bit. Now, I don't know if it's that borrowers are getting more desperate because the money the money uh, fountain has been turned off, um, or that they're getting over their in, their interest rate sticker shock. And I kind of think the latter. I think that that it's sort of plausible that you know now that you know, the Fed's kind of getting to the end of their tightening and and uh, the long term rates haven't really been going up aggressively for a while now. You know, the ten year rates around four percent and. And, uh, you know, and once rates stop going up, then from a borrower standpoint, the rates are what they are. And if you need to borrow, you kind of have to borrow. Then the, the current environment is the reality. And so the demand for loans ought to come back. Yes, I'd rather borrow at 3%, but I can't. So I'm going to borrow at 6%. Um, and, and if you're building a plant, or if you have to pay off your 19% or 22% credit cards, then whether or not you're borrowing at 3% or 6% is not all that important. Um, you make much more money on good investing decisions than you do on good financing decisions. Um, anyway, so I, I think what that means is that I don't know that we can count on M over Q doing all of the lifting on that convergence with price. It would be great if we did. We could say, okay, good. The inflation is basically over. Prices are going to go flat from here. Money will come down and we'll be back in a super low inflation environment um, with low money growth. That would be terrific. Um, but I'm until the balance sheet gets small enough to converge, uh, to converge, to constrain banks, I just don't know that that's going to happen. So, again, this is all in the current book. 
of inflation. I think median inflation, which is currently at 6.44%, but coming down, will end this year around 5%-ish. But then it's only going to drop to around 4% in 2024. And that's it. I've been saying this for a long time. The, the, the game is not really so much, you know, where inflation is going to go over the next couple of months, or even that it's going down. We don't have to call a peak anymore. We're past the peak. The question is, how far down does it go? And it's just not clear to me that it's going to go to two. Um, I, but at the, by the end of this book, by the end of 2024, you know, we're going to see it around median inflation around 4%. Um, if M2 starts to slide again, again, it's gone up for the last couple months. If it starts to go down again, then there's some down downside risk to my 2024 estimate. But we're not talking about 2%, I don't think. I think by late in 2024, if we're in the high threes on median inflation, low fours, I think it's going to feel like this episode, this book, is just about closed. You had the run-up and then the decline. The decline doesn't have to go back to 2% for the book to be closed. You know, the story doesn't always end with the protagonist in exactly the same situation that they started. <laughs> um, there's, there's really no good reason to expect inflation to go back to 2% and be well-behaved just because we want it to be, especially when we've shattered the prior paradigm and any homeostasis that we had developed over the prior decades has been thrown out the window. So that's where book one ends. But Ed, so then we get into sort of the whole arc. And what I've said since way before COVID is that I think the generational decline in inflation and interest rates ended shortly after the global financial crisis. The way I used to describe it was that there was this virtuous cycle that had been in place since the early 1980s, where lower interest rates uh, caused lower velocity, which caused lower inflation, and that led back to lower interest rates, and the whole cycle started again. Uh, and once the cycle was kind of set in motion in the early 1980s, all the Fed had to do was not screw it up. In the 1990s, they also got some good luck with demographics and globalization, and that all kind of reinforced the trend to lower highs and lower lows. But in the last decade, and again, before COVID, we ran out of room to have the virtuous cycle continue. So we had risked a move to a vicious cycle where slightly higher interest rates led to higher velocity, which led to higher inflation, which led to higher interest rates. Um, we didn't, I didn't really expect we were going to get this big COVID crack up, but it looked like that cycle was, was in place. And, and to me, the higher highs and higher lows were, were not, you know, 8, 12, 22. They were, you know, 3% to then maybe the next high is four and a half. Maybe the next high was six or something like that. Um, it, not a straight line. You know, this this vicious cycle doesn't operate in a straight line. It just becomes kind of the waves go higher rather than the waves coming lower. Uh, unless the Fed actively fought it by keeping money growth exceptionally low. I don't see a 40-year inflation up cycle like we had a 40-year inflation down cycle, but demographics have reversed and globalization has at least stopped improving and recently has definitely reversed. And both of those things were, were big contributors to the exceptionally low inflation that we got in the, in the 90s. And, and labor also has renewed muscle. We just you know, saw that UPS managed to reach an agreement with the Teamsters. But you know the whole country was, was shaking for a while about whether or not we were going to lose UPS for a bit. Um, 
you know, FedEx is still negotiating with uh, with its unions, and and you know, there's a great correlation between the level of inflation and the level of uh, uh, union membership. Um, when inflation is low, you don't need strong unions. When inflation gets higher, unions, you know, have a plausible argument to the workforce that they can help out. Uh, so, so we we've started to see labor have renewed muscle here, and um, uh, what that means is that just as the Fed was able to let money grow objectively too fast in the 1990s and 2000s, um, they let money grow too fast, but didn't get inflation because they had these these beneficial effects of globalization and, and demographics, um, and now they're going the other way, and so the Fed is going to have to grow money, not just at the levels of the 1990s and the 2000s, and not just even at kind of, you know, what we'd think of as sort of the natural level you want money growth to be at, you know, four or 5%, but lower, persistently lower than that because the, all the winds are blowing in the other direction. So book two and book three of this story, uh, which we're looking at late 24 and 25 and 26 and going further, forward well those next books are going to be about these higher highs and higher lows and and the drama is whether the fed can decisively break the back of the new inflation trend that's the big picture arc and we'll be telling that story for a long time i think we'll i suspect we'll be wrestling with inflation for at least the next couple of cycles unless the fed does keep shrinking the balance sheet long after most people shriek for them to stop um well the fed not flush in cash again when the next crisis hits? Uh, I'm skeptical, but that's the major plot point of book two. When the next crisis hits, does the money come flooding back or does the Fed hold its water? Well, we're still in book one, uh, but I think we're starting to know how book one looks like it's going to end. Stay tuned here as those pages turn in book one and as we move to book two. And that's all for today. So, Back to the top and the um, and the trivia question. The trivia question was, what 1908 Jack Norworth ditty sung by millions and millions of times every year in the United States leads into its famous refrain with uh, with the the stanza that I I won't sing again, but it was uh, that that you've just never heard of, and and the hint is that no one ever sings the verse; they only sing the refrain, and uh, and so today we have an audio answer. And so here's the audio answer. You'll recognize it pretty quickly, I think. Casey, Casey was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad. Just to root for the hometown through every zoo. Casey Blue, on a Saturday, her young beau called to see if she'd like to go to see a show. But Miss Kate said no, I'll tell you what you can do. I actually cut that off before the, 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 the there's another stanza to it. 
Uh, but there's a link in the notes. And if you want to, you can go and, and listen to, to the whole thing. Um, certainly never knew there was a whole song that went along with it, but yeah, that's kind of interesting. So um, I hope you enjoyed that. That was, um, it's always fun to actually do the trivia questions. I hope you have as much fun trying to answer them as I have coming up with them. Anyway, that's all for today's podcast. Uh, please like us, subscribe to us, talk to talk about us to your friends and, and, and so on. You can contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com and subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog. Um, visit Enduring Investments if you have an inflation challenge. And most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs>